0: It's Monday. Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. I'm joined by Scary Monster and Super Creep, Steve Walsh. Hello. Hello. This is part two of three Bowie episodes. Last time we did David Bowie from his birth, essentially, to Berlin in 1979. And today we're taking it from 1980 to the present day, the music. We'll be looking at
1: the films in a future episode to tie things up. And we're going to talk about the
0: album's
1: Events around the albums and an exhibition at the Victorian Album Museum that you managed to visit last week.
0: Yeah, at the moment, the V&A have got David Bowie is on until August the eleventh, and it's their most popular exhibition they've ever done in their history. And uh, it's been extended by a couple of weeks to August the eleventh, but they can't extend it any further because they've got Chinese paintings next. They must be gutted about that, isn't it? (laughs) Who's going to see that? I mean, it's all the eras. You know, it's Chinese paintings from, like... The thing
1: is, they'll probably appreciate the rest. I mean, you know, we hope that Chinese painting is popular, but uh, it'll probably be nice to go in and not face a 1,000 people queuing up for day tickets. That's an estimate, rather than... uh,
0: You can still get tickets if you turn up. I mean, it's sold out, I think, but you can just turn up in the morning and just queue up and get tickets. And if you're as big a Bowie fan as we are then it's definitely worthwhile. There's some tremendous stuff in there. Like you go in, they give you a set of headphones and like a, a wireless unit. When you walk around, like different music comes on depending on what you're looking at. Um, and yeah, so it's a full sound and vision experience. I went to a similar um, exhibition a few years ago where uh, David
1: Byrne from Talking Heads had composed uh, tracks that related to exhibits and places in the v um, oh. so you'd sort of walk through the galleries and um, one of my favourite bits was the you, you'd go through the Chinese galleries actually and um, it was just a recording of this uh, little girl talking about her response to these uh, figurines um, but it was really smart like if you walk past the toilets uh, it's like playing this like, ambient track uh, that was built off of like just dripping water oh. really smart so obviously I mean that was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that sort of technology where you have the headset but obviously, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant way to
0: sort of. So, in there, you've got like cost, loads of costumes and stuff. They've got the Earthling coat, for example. They've got loads of like Ziggy Stardust era stuff, thin White Duke outfit. Any cutlery? Yeah, they've got a uh, cocaine spoon 1974. is one little uh, thing, some tiny little spoon. I suppose you don't need like a tablespoon, do you, for cocaine? Yeah, I'm not so sure what the dosage is, but... <laughs> I don't know what the doctors recommend, but... come one of those little plastic spoons. Three of these, twice a day. No more. So <laughs> Otherwise, you've got a problem. Loads of his drawings and paintings and stuff. Like, you know, uh, Diamond Dogs era. He wanted to make a film uh, called Hunger City, which is kind of... Originally, he wanted to do, like, this 1984 adaptation. And it's kind of a part, you know, it's a mix and that, all that stuff. And, like, the storyboards, notes written for it... And I suppose a lot of it ended up as kind of the stage stuff for the Diamond Dogs tour. So there's loads of that. Lo-
1: the persona of Halloween Jack, I suppose, isn't it? It's yeah. Sort of built through
0: it. There's a lot of album cover stuff as well. That said, the, the new album, The Next Day, there's a load of alternative covers to that, which is great. There's like pin-ups with, uh, well, as people probably know, the cover is the hero's cover with a big white box on the top. Um, so you can't see Bowie. And the word heroes still on there, but crossed out. Yeah. Which is nice. Really nice touch. Yeah, there's a video um, of the, the designer, Jonathan... What's his last name? Because of a B. But he's talking about going um, through the process. And he's obviously a bit annoyed about people just saying it's a white box over the top of heroes. It's obviously more than that. But it's, they've got some alternate designs where they've got um, pin-ups. The cover for pin-ups with like, black spots over his and Twiggy's face and some other stuff. A load of lyrics... Handwritten lyrics, right? One of them, he's got the lyrics to Heroes written on red graph paper. That looks great. That would look... Got the synthesizer from Heroes in a Perspex box. He's got the sign, right? Take making it South London. He's got the sign from Stansfield Road where he he was born in Brixton. Uh, The keys to his Berlin apartment, just hanging up in there. My favourite thing there was uh, this set of cards... Called oblique strategies cards, produced by Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt. I'm not sure who that is because I haven't had a chance to kind of look it up yet. Uh, in 1977, and like they've had them kind of printed like professionally, and it's just a load of like creative cards Same things like "work at a different speed," <laughs> um, "abandon normal instruments." Like Eno, if he's having a bit of a block, he just pulls one of these cards out. Do the washing up. is one. Do the washing up, Brian Eno. That's Brian Eno's words, Steve. To recap, part one. Right, David- Bowie is born. <laughs> <laughs> David Jones, and we can't do the
1: whole thing again.
0: We can't, but you know, just in case anyone hasn't listened to it, we're huge Bowie fans, and he's just knocking out amazing album after amazing album. You know, pretty much uh, one a year. Ziggy Stardust is my favourite. Steve's is the man who sold the uh, <laughs> sold the costumes. <crossroads. laughs> <laughs> Steve's is the man who sold the world inexplicably. <laughs> but we you know we loved almost everything from that, yeah uh, you know up to 1979 obviously from 1980 to the new album the next day it's going to be a bit of a mixed bag it's a bumpier ride this time it certainly. is but it almost makes it more interesting yeah, to go definitely. on doesn't it yeah yeah bowie released a single called crystal japan which is the theme tune from an advert that he was in in japan crystal Gym Rock saki I think it was a track that had turned up on an import
1: edition, it was, a, it was a rarity that was going for crazy money, so I think Bowie, just to sort of take the steam out of the sort of speculator market, released it as a legit single so it would be accessible to everyone.
0: Well, I thought what it was is that it was a single in Japan, and then he put it on a B-side of Up the Hill Backwards, I think it was, ah. uh, a couple of years later, or even a year later, whatever it was. But it's a great track, man. Yeah. It's, there's suggestions on com, which is an incredible website. Um, it's akin to... Um, what's the guy's name? Ian McDonald's Revolution in the Head or Clinton Halen's Revolution in the Air. They're Dylan and uh, Beatles song by song. He suggests that it's, yeah, like Berlin era. It wasn't just recorded for the advert. But yeah, the advert's great. It's just Bowie sitting at a piano. Then it cuts to this weird kind of cgi shape <laughs> <laughs> obviously uh would you say cgi so <laughs> scary monster super creep steve preceded by number one single ashes to ashes one of the best known bowie songs sequel to space Oddity in a way yeah it's wonderful isn't it ashes to ashes you tell me why you think it is because i don't feel that way <laughs> oh really um
1: well just before i go into why i feel that way um I want to emphasise how much I enjoyed it. When I was having rough times over the next few Bowie albums, uh, you know, certain moments where I was like, "This, this is going to be hard work." On uh, my iPod, I'd flip to "Ashes to Ashes." Just give it a blast of that. It was almost like to cleanse the palate. Just sort of, like I go, "Now I can do the rest of tonight," because I've, you know, I've, I've reinforced. I've, I've put some good Bowie in there to like flush out some of the uh, the weaker stuff. Um, I. Uh, I think I love everything about it. I think uh, instrumentally, I think it's well, the guitar synth Yeah, yeah. Um, just like, Well, that that riff is just uh, wonderful, isn't it? Just uh, and it uh, made me think. Um, on the first album, I talked about a Bowie song accounting for half of Blur's output. This is the other half of that. <laughs> Do you not know think very Blur? There's a lot of Blur uh, that comes out. Of I suppose a bit. Dead, yeah. like, there's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> Um, also, you know, Bowie himself described it as, um, him wrapping up the seventies for himself. And I think listening to it now, having done what we did and sort of going through the journey of listening to all his albums from the seventies, it really sort of, it resonated for me. The whole idea of him looking back at himself, but also Um, his persona, Major Tom's a junkie. Exactly. Revisiting, you know, and, and this is the thing, lyrically, I think, um, It's referenced in his work, but it is referenced in his life as well. He's talking about, um, you know, strung out in heaven's high, hitting an all-time low, which is, you know, him referring to the fate of Major Sun, but also talking about his own uh, struggles. But also, um, and, you know, people have talked about this album as being an angry album and him trying to sort of find peace for himself. He was at a a really odd transitional period where, uh, you know, he's facing a new decade and he's got, you know, he's gone from being this influential character in the glam period to now a whole generation coming up that are basically working off of what he's done you know you're getting a new romantics coming in and all the sort a lot of the the sort of more the glam elements of of post punk where other pe and you know it's interesting because in the video itself you know he'd, he's he's re- recruited the blitz kids steve strange and other people from this scene that oh, Pretty much appropriating a lot of his imagery and his ideas and techniques to to create uh, you know uh, careers for themselves, and it's something that comes across in the album where he's he's talking about people who are aping him. But it seems like with this song, he, it's about him finding pieces, about him looking back and realizing that you know he made mistakes, but he's survived and he's he's looking forward to the next phase of his career. He says, um, you know. I've never done good things, I've never done bad things. He's sort of realising that he's done things as a human rather than as an icon, which is what he's seen a lot of times.
2: I'm
0: happy, hope you're happy too. Similarly with uh, the other song, uh, Space Oddity, it just leaves me a bit cold, really. Really? Yeah, and uh, similarly with... I think the video is appalling. Like, it's kind of an iconic video. Yeah. It's dated horribly... And it's, of all David Bowie's um, atrocious uh, costume choices throughout <laughs> his career, and they're almost all terrible, I think. <laughs> this is the worst, the Piero, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that is on the cover of the album. And I'll go for the, Union. the I'll go for Union Jack Coat, but of course I would, so. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, it's not, it's not bad, you know, compared to some of the stuff that's coming up. But, um, <laughs> I certainly don't find it to be an album highlight, should we say.
1: There's a, a particularly nice bit in the video where, because it it's very sort of clumsy imagery, it's him as the Piero and the Blitz kids wearing sort of gowns and sort of following behind him as a as a chorus or, you know, followers. And, uh, you know, as I say, it's clumsy imagery. They're being chased by a bulldozer. You know, modernism chasing them down, something. Um, there's this wonderful bit in the video where they're in this, like, junkyard and Bowie's leading them forwards and the others are following behind. And it looks like they're bowing. Behind him, but uh, it was actually their robes were getting caught under the bulldozer, oh, <laughs> so they had to keep stopping to like drag themselves clear of the bulldozer so they wouldn't get crushed. Lovely, you know, they get crushed. No visage, no fate grey that's what we're talking about. I think it's significant as well that all the songs are credited to Bowie on the album, it's a sort of a move away from the Berlin era where it's very much about his collaborations with particularly Visconti and Eno, but, you know, his uh, fellow musicians as well. And, you know, what's to come in terms of his
0: uh, ways of working. Whatever you do, don't get Jeff Hudson's Bowie book. He says Scary Monsters and Super Creeps was Bowie's strongest work for years, arguably his best ever. That is not... <laughs> listen right no longer shackled by Eno's adventurism <laughs> <laughs> he Visconti created a visceral soundscape blah 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 Robert blah, Fripp yeah? no longer shackled no, by no, no, Eno's look, adventurism no, hold on.
1: shackled by adventurism exactly shackled by adventurism the David Bowie story like, what are you talking about how would you be shackled by adventurism he wasn't the only person that uh, enjoyed the album though the record mirror gave it seven stars out of five which isn't bad, is it? <laughs> they good, they enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, Hill Backwards is great. It's No Game, also really good. It's No Game,
1: what a way to open an album, isn't it? Mm. And also the, the book ending of it
0: with the sort of the angrier
1: uh, style at the start and the calm style. at the, end, the counterpoint of the sort of uh, Japanese uh, vocals alongside it. Yeah, brilliant.
0: The title track is also a highlight as well. Uh, he's doing like a mockney, mm. accent, which is a nice return to... Uh, It's kind of what he was doing in 1967, isn't it? (laughs) And maybe the highlight, you might say, is fashion. Uh, And here's Tom Evans, bass player, talking about it.
2: Well, I wanted to talk about one song, which is fashion, of course. Exactly. Turn to the left, if you could. Turn to the right. Beep, beep. Which actually drew my attention to David Bowie and... Basically, um, that was the first track I heard of his and I really, really like the guitar solo by Robert Fripp uh, because uh, without using the ultimate cliche, he breaks all the rules. (laughs) Guilty, get a new rule book. (laughs) Um, He just plays everything angular. He doesn't play any of the root notes or anything like that. He just plays it in a really offbeat way and um, it adds to what is already a wonderful song.
0: There's a kind of running joke about David Bowie album reviews, is that it's always his best record since Gary Monsters and Supercreeps, so might say that a couple of times in the next. <laughs> uh... <laughs>
1: Not for a while, I don't think.
0: There are plenty of Bowie collaborations over the years, and as I said, about with the kind of non non album singles, the soundtrack stuff, we can't really go through all of it. But Under Pressure with Queen is one of the most instantly recognisable bass riffs of all time Ice Ice Baby I suppose <laughs> part of the reason
2: do
0: you remember it coming out Steve?
1: I don't it's not till we get to the next album that I have my first uh,
0: true memory of Bowie what's that the bar or the soundtrack? <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I stand by it <laughs> Beyond under Pressure is um, yeah I mean it's it's a great riff isn't it it is do you know the Nebworth version? I don't. Basically, just Freddie Mercury just scatting over it like, mm. And yeah. it's just like the whole of Nebworth is just like, yeah. So bad. Like, it's hard to put into words how bad it is, even I for f- Freddie Mercury. I can imagine, because I hate Queen. <laughs> yeah, I never I don't understand.
1: You know people go, because uh, you know you not know the best song of all time is, Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> and you go,
0: that's two awful songs, yeah. actually. too terrible songs. It's not even the best song of that month, is it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I'm not a big... Queen fan, so uh, under pushing pressure. down
2: on me. Yeah. But
1: you, uh, you don't, you can't even put up a under pressure. Um, he's probably the most tolerable, but just you know, you always get the feeling that he, even if he's not Freddie Mercury, he's never far away from just uh, making incoherent noise over the top of it in the name of art. So Tony Visconti at this point has done, I think, the last half dozen uh, Bowie albums, or so, but we had a good run. Doesn't get a call. For the next one, Bowie uh, gets Nile Rogers of yeah. Sheikin to do it. Um, uh, Tony Visconti didn't get a phone call, just found out that David Bowie was in the studio with someone else recording him. Didn't really speak for 20 years. That's a bit... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, a bit awkward. I mean, they've obviously massively reconciled now, and it seems fun. Mm-hmm. I think, he's I don't produced...
0: Know, the, don't be doing spoilers, but he's yeah. produced the last, what, three records? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. They're, they're back in tandem now. But, um, yeah, you get the feeling that as part of his break from the past, Bowie's looking for, you know, very new directions. And it, it's almost, you know, with Let's Dance, it's it's a, a sort of return to blue-eyed soul. You know, he described himself as blues rock guitar against the, a dance format. So he gets, you know, Nile Rodgers in to expand the sound.
0: Yeah, Nile Rodgers came from, as you say, chic, you know, uh, freak out, and also good times. And, yep. um, did you see the documentary on the iPlayer about him recently? No. Like the last couple of weeks. Really good. You know what I mean? I mean, it's kind of a pretty straightforward documentary, you know how these things go. But, like, he's holding this guitar. He's like, this has played on a billion dollars worth of hits. This, like, <laughs> this old telecast, I think it was. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, he's incredibly talented. And, like, the chic stuff is great. Those two tracks, you know. I don't know much beyond that. But yeah. Tremendous stuff. Uh, yeah, Bowie put down all his instruments for this, didn't he? Yeah, album, he, only play on the he only sings. He
1: only sings. Yeah, but again, you know, he, part of his appeal has always been the fact that he's he's chosen uh, strong collaborators, you know, good producers and good musicians. And you know, for this album, Nile Rodgers Rogers produced and Stevie Ray Vaughan on guitar. So yeah. the, the interesting thing for "Let's Dance" for me was, until listening to the album, I'd never heard the album version, and this is the song that I first remember hearing and seeing David Bowie as a performer. You know, the video in particular. But just the opening, for me, Let's Dance is that Uh, that opening. Yeah, exactly. And then the music kicking in and, you know, this uh, Australian outback landscape and, yeah, just, you know, remarkable. So listening to the album version, um, I was like, what's this? This isn't Let's Dance. And it's this elaborate soundscape and... It just seemed, for me, it seemed very sort of overproduced and too long. But that's that's the danger of me knowing the single version and never hearing the album version. So the album version's alien to me.
0: I've only ever heard the album version, then I guess because I uh... basically with less dance, it's a bit like ashes to ashes, space Oddity, a handful of other tracks. It's one of those sort of Bowie songs that everybody knows. Yeah, and I'd never liked it like. It's the sort of thing DJs play at like indie nights, yeah. And you can see why because it's kind of because of the beat or whatever. But I'd never it's it. As well, i would never
1: liked it. How can you resist? Probably part of it,
0: isn't it? David Bowie's telling you to go off and dance. Do it. But when I put it on and listen to it on headphones, it was like I'd never heard it before. Like, and even though like it's not up there with my favourite Bowie stuff, I think they achieve perfectly what they're trying to achieve. Like this, it sounds incredible. Like, you know, and this, the way it's constructed, you know, this whole kind of, like, that uh, kind of 50s, like, ah, uh, yeah, ah, yeah, uh, uh, and it goes, bang, like, goes bang into that kind of, it's not really disco, is it? I mean, it's kind of post that, but...
1: Well, it, it was, bo it was very much, but wanted to take his sensibility of sort of 60s folk rock and set it against the sort of 70s, 80s electro dance backdrop and as you say the, you know this is probably the most successful example of the two ideas uh, being fused
0: number one on both sides of the Atlantic yeah the is only that...
1: time he ever achieved that which you'd imagine
0: would have happened more often but as an album I wasn't a huge fan I think it's mixed for me I think there's some, some great stuff as uh, we've got Tom Evans on again in a second to talk about Cat People and that is one of my favourite Bowie tracks of all time my favourite Bowie track Post-Heroes, certainly, lived the last 35 years. Uh, I think Shake It is fantastic as well, the last track. it's like sounds a bit like a Prince track, and then it kind of ends up, you know, the What's my life? It sounds like Daft Punk or something. <laughs> and, like, fittingly, <laughs> Niall Rogers has done the new Daft Punk album. Oh, really? Random Access Memories. Okay. What a great title. <laughs> like, trying to go on Modern Love, they're another couple of the kind of big tracks, which I think are good... But, I mean, there certainly wouldn't. Uh, China be my Girl, favorite. I
1: had issues with because it's a bit clumsy, I think. I mean, as a song, as the idea of it, you're a bit like this is a bit on the nose, this is a bit, but you know, of the time and whatnot. But then reading about it, it's basically about a doomed love affair between Iggy Pop and a Vietnamese woman. <laughs> yeah. So it's even worse. You're sort of <laughs> going, I, you can't just call it that because she's not that, she's mm. that, isn't she? So you know. Call it, you know, Vietnam Girl, or don't. Don't call it any of those things. And maybe, I don't know, it, yeah, it was very
0: sort of odd for me, that one. Ricochet it might be the worst thing he's ever recorded, I think. Hmm. I don't know if I can go along with that. He says, uh, you like it? No, but this worse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he's never played it live, Ricochet, so he must acknowledge it's appallingness. I think. Well, I think there's a song coming up later on that uh, has a worse fate than that. I watched the film Cat People just to see where the track was used in it because I was just so obsessed with the track. And the film's great. It's the Paul Schrader version from, I think, 82. And it doesn't get particularly good reviews, but I thought it was superb. Some, like, incredible imagery in it and stuff. And it's basically it's used over the closing credits, but it's a different version. It's like the original version, um which doesn't have Stevie Ray Vaughan on it, is the main difference. And oh, it's a right. lot slower. Yeah. And that's the same version that's used in Inglorious Bastards. Putting out fire with gasoline. You know, in uh, when she's burning yeah. down the cinema. Not burning it down, just getting ready to burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is uh, part of what established
1: Stevie Ray Vaughan, isn't it? As uh, a major figure. A
0: full show. Mm. There's a bootleg called Dallas Moonlight, because the serious Moonlight tour that followed it these are like the rehearsal tapes and like Stevie Ray Vaughan's over that but he's quite kind of constrained because one of the criticisms I suppose you would level at uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan is that it's just just kind of shackled by adventurism isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? he's just like he's just going off on this you know I imagine Tom as a bit of a funky bass man uh-huh. less is probably on your list isn't it?
2: it is yeah big fan of Niall Rogers big fan of the uh the early eighties production sounds, which I know hasn't dated that well no but, but I think yeah. um,
0: some of his other stuff like the following two albums do sound bad 80s but there's a yeah. great 80s on Let's Dance
2: uh, and, uh, yeah true and also I really like uh, David Bowie I think one of his underrated uh, things in music is his intros like uh, the way a song kicks in in particular China Girl I think has got a great intro it's just a great intro uh, Let's Dance uh, and also Cat People. Yeah, well. Cat People, like kind of Which, wheezy guitar. Uh, just the way, you know, uh, it starts off with sort of some heavy keyboard and some droning vocals, and then it all kicks in, the, the drums and the bass, and um, Bowie's voice goes into... You know, Overdrive, yeah. So yeah, Cat
0: People's one of my favourites, man. Stevie Ray Vaughan's guitar, because there's a the version in the film doesn't have Stevie Ray Vaughan on it. It's much Correct. slower.
2: As a from a bass point of view, being a bass player, just when the drums and the bass kicking on that song, because it's kind of unexpected. Uh, I thought it was great, and I like the fact that Stevie Ray Vaughan wasn't one of those guitarists who sort of curtailed to David Bowie. Like he didn't seem to. Um, worship him like other musicians did, and he kind of just did his own thing as well. So let Dance gets
0: some mixed reviews, should we say, but I think it's undeniable. that There's some great stuff on there. The next album, Tonight from 1984, but we also pen no instruments, is Dreadful. Right, it starts with Love in the Alien, which is another one in the kind of Alien series. Yeah, the worst one. <laughs> uh, followed by this white reggae track, Don't Look Now, followed by this terrible cover of God Only Knows by the Beach Boys, followed by more white reggae. I mean, it's so bad, the album. Well, it's interesting as well, looking at the the transition
1: from uh, Scary Monsters and Super know, there's only two Bowie songs on the album, and one of those is Love and the Alien, the other one's uh, Blue Jean. But it is, it's heavily uh, collaborated on its cover versions. It's very much, you know, and, and Bowie himself said, the success, the commercial success of Let's Dance, took him by surprise, and he had a he felt he had an obligation to try and retain the audience that he got. You know, after the Serious Moonlight tour, he, he realised that this was a new crowd that was coming to see him, so he felt he had to to serve them in in some way. But unfortunately, you know, I think you know it's a, a dangerous game for an artist, isn't it? You know, Alan Alan Moore uh, talks about it. You know, he says that's the reason the audience is the audience. You know, you, you can't give them what you think they want. If they knew what they'd want, they'd make it. They don't know what they want, so you have to give them what you think's the best thing you do and hope that they follow you. Or not even worry they follow you, just you're losing the people that are terrible. So, And this, <laughs> it, this is what he's trying to do here. He's trying to serve a particular strand of people, but he really know how to do it, I don't think. And that's fine, because, you know, he's proved that when he goes on his own and does his own things, he, he gets an audience anyway, so... Again, going back to the quality of collaborators, and this isn't where well, he's gonna disparage the man, but we've gone from Mick Ronson, Carlos Andomar, Steve Ray Vaughan. On this album you've got Mark King from Level 42 dropping some slap bass. Bowie himself described the album as him uh, keeping his hand in. Which is not really keeping him what, man? Well, but, it, but this is the thing, it's, that's the worst the worst attitude to have when you're doing something creative, surely, to sort of go, I better just I better do one, I suppose. You know, with every every other album he's done up to this point, there's there's been a reason behind it, hasn't it? It's been an impetus. Whereas this, it just felt like he felt obligated to sort of go, give give him an album, give him an album. But fortunately, things get a lot better on the next
0: album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ironically titled Never Let Me Down, 1987. <laughs> I'd say it's almost as bad. It's not as offensively bad, but it's not good. I would say it's worse, because I felt... With tonight, Anger. there was a tendency
1: <laughs> towards a very 80s guitar y, very twangy guitar thing. Um, and you'll probably be too young to appreciate this reference, but um, listening to Never Let Me Down, I felt like it was the sort of music that would appear in sort of Beverly Hills Cop in 48 Hours. It was very much an yeah. Eddie Murphy 80s cop thriller actioner, with the or like in uh, Night Rider, slap synth. Yeah, this is it. There be there'd be like bits in Knight Rider where um, you know, Michael Knight's in his car and he's driving off to Solar Crime. They they play like the Pointer Sisters Jump. They just play like this and this is the sort of music they play in And that's not how I want my David Bowie to be. I don't want it to be incidental music in an action film.
0: I think there is a real kind of problem with certain music uh recorded in the eighties with the kind of date how dated it is. Right, with some things that are recorded in the 70s, I'm talking very broadly, right, but things recorded in the 70s and the 60s, you know, even when it has a kind of generic 70s or generic 60s sort of genre sound, like, it's kind of, it's not a problem, but at this point in time where sort of technology was kind of coming into music quite heavily, just things that sound 80s in that kind of cliched way don't hold up, do they? Yeah. And you can't even, you can't listen to it. No, no. The, not the
1: worst thing, but another thing that bothers me is the fact that while it sounds like generic music from an 80s action film, he's trying to comment on issues, in it, isn't he? You know, there's things about homelessness and Chernobyl, and it doesn't feel substantial enough for these things to be discussed in that sort of way. And he tries to play of images, the idea of the glass spider that goes on to influence the tour. But it, it feels like a very a pale imitation of, of Bowie in terms of images and ideas
0: well with the whole glass spider thing um and similarly with the vna exhibition what kind of really kind of hit home to me is that all these these things are kind of will be forgotten yeah like the costumes and stuff and and you know set stage design like what is important is the music and like in that first uh, episode of on bowie like we kind of almost got distracted by the music like there was someone sent us an email saying like oh you didn't mention this stuff in South London it was great stuff right? yeah, yeah, and we at some point we should but <laughs> um you know it's the music is what endures isn't it
1: yeah and there's so much to talk about
0: you're over you know there's a danger
1: we were talking about with the first one there's a danger of like going through it track by track and talking about every single song whereas here we're sort of talking about albums and when we're talking about songs you know I'll, I'll talk about songs never let me down you know if you want to talk about the worst collaborator that Bowie ever picked. Probably Mickey Rourke as a as a rapper on Shining Star. You know, that's not that's not a particularly you know, it's funny. But I don't think that's what he's going for. Yeah. and it just it does feel like he's he's hit a real trough where he's sort of going, um, should we get Mickey Rourke in to do a rapping list? And everyone's going, Yeah, definitely do that. Just remarkable decisions. And you know, going back to um, you were saying earlier about the weakest song that Bowie's done. Um, when the well, when, when the album's reissued, uh, "Too Dizzy" doesn't make it to the reissue. Uh, Bowie, you know, not only doesn't play alive live, doesn't want it played at all anymore. Doesn't really want to annoy. Jesus. Understandably, it is a dreadful song. I mean, Bowie himself. Uh, I've got a, a wonderful quote from him where he addresses the whole situation. He says. um You can tell I was terribly unhappy in the late 80s. I was in that never world of commercial acceptance. It was an awful trip. 1983, 84, 85, 86, 87. Those five years were simply dreadful. My Nadir was Never Let Me Down. It was such an awful album. I really shouldn't have even bothered going to the studio to record it. In fact, when I play it, I wonder if I did sometimes. (laughs) Not my words. (laughs) You know, and and that's the thing. Clearly, now I can look back and sort of go... And that's the thing, as I say... If you know he talks about the, the the never world of commercial acceptance, he felt an obligation to make these albums. You know, in the seventies, we talked about it, he was doing an album a year, and it's not quite at that level here, but he's still regularly producing music, but he's clearly feeling no genuine creative impulse to do so or any, you know, clear vision of what he wants to achieve. It feels like his creative response is the Tin Machine Project, which is Bowie essentially is the lead singer in a rock and roll band, straight up rock and roll, guitars, drum rolls, no overdubs, very sort of classical in, in form. And the democracy, it's not a David Bowie project. It's seen as he's just a member of this band and they've all got equal standing and you know what they're going to create is going to be coming from all of them equally.
0: Yeah, has he been explicit on why he... Uh, is it the anonymity he was after?
1: Yeah, I think it was the idea of... The responsibility being shared, rather than the expectation of what is the next David Bowie album going to be. Him go well next David Bowie album going to be Tim Machine, which is me and these guys who have all created the music together. So the pressure's off a little bit, isn't it? It does mean you're a bit freer in terms of, of what you're going to release and produce.
0: With Tim Machine, it, it seems to me that it's a lot easier to put out a kind of half-decent rock record than it, like heavy rocking record. Yeah. And it is to do something interesting creatively and have it be half-decent
1: yeah I mean these like are i say like
0: heroes right yeah you can't just go in in yeah. the studio and do sort of a heroes if you're not at your kind of creative high point yeah whereas if you can ready. go in and bang out an, a hard rock record the trouble is that the, both the Tim Machine records they're not good like they don't rock at all like no. it's just it doesn't feel I mean I know you're on Dangerous Ground when you start talking about what's authentic music and what isn't but it just they're not Led Zeppelin you know what I mean? They're not Hendrix, and it just—they're not the Pixies, like a kind of contemporary influence. Yeah. And they just—they don't rock, man. They're not like two of them in the bands were Iggy Pop's band for a while, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And there is a kind of Stooges element to it, but not as good.
1: It feels very safe, doesn't it? It feels and it—it it feels almost like it's Bobby sort of stepping back and going, just getting back to basics and just recharging his batteries and just not having to worry about, you know. Say the the imagery and the ideas that he struggled with in the last couple of albums. Now he can just do this thing. Doesn't have to get caught up in expectation or whatnot. Just you know, it, it, it's a freeing thing, and it, almost like he's sort of stepping back to to burst forward again with his batteries recharged.
0: The opening track on the first album and debut single, "Heavens Here," like starts quite well, and it's um like a kind of Iggy Pop type thing. But it goes on and on and on for it goes on for six minutes, and there's a line on the BowieSongs.wordpress.com. He says few records are as exciting in miniature and as draining as a whole as Tin Machine. <laughs> like it just go, the record just goes on and on, and it's just this one tone. And like... well, I
1: think all the songs open really well. You sort of go, oh, this is uh, mm-hmm. It's like got a nice sort of great sort of you know opening. But then, as you say, there's not really enough to them yeah. to sort of engage you.
0: Maybe Big Hurt, which is a Pixies type thing that's really hard, you know. And there's a couple of tracks that are kind of passable, but nothing I would describe as good. The
1: second album's harder and a bit more industrial and and a bit more substantial. But even then, you know, look, my favourite thing about the second album was the controversy over the cover. Do you know about this?
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's an image of four... Guys in a row in it, like... Statues. statues, yeah. And yeah. they've got their uh, Johnsons out. But what... I mean, they must be thousands of years old, isn't
1: it? Yeah. But in America, uh, the record company decided that it was unacceptable for stone genitalia <laughs> to be uh, exhibited. So they um, blocked them out. But Bowie uh, had a solution to this that he thought would please everyone. He, his, his thing was, fine, if you want to release you know the album with that cover, that's, that's okay. But he it would be an option for people to write in to ask for a sheet of stickers so that they could then <laughs> place over uh, the images to give them their... Uh, um, the record company blocked it. There's a great quote from someone explaining why he wasn't allowed to do it. And apparently, um, sending genitals through the mail is a very serious offense. <laughs> uh,
0: so that's four bad Bowie records in a row. And when I say bad, I mean I'll never listen to them again. <laughs> and he was about to make it five. But... In uh, 1993, with uh, black tie, white no yo yo yo, yo <laughs> At least he's back to trying to do something interesting, something maybe even groundbreaking, and trying to make a Bowie record rather than just knocking out a set of songs. He's got Nile Rogers back in the studio. He's inspired by his marriage, his new interracial marriage to Iman. <laughs> you laugh, Steve, but that's significant, isn't it, with the title? It's a great title for a record, I think. Black tie, white noise. I thought the title referred more to uh, race riots in Los Angeles. Yeah, but the fact that he's going house hunting um, on the day Rodney King's um, attackers are found innocent with his uh, black wife. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It kind of. I know he's not saying like, you know, black wife, white noise. (laughs) uh,
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, say it feels like. The, the the sort of Tim Machine process allowing him to step a, away a little bit does recharge him somewhat. It's a stronger album than we've seen. And you can sort of see the, the, the change in emphasis with the song You've Been Around, which is a song he wrote for Tim Machine that features uh, Reeves Gabriels from Tim Machine on the song. But Bowie talks uh, quite openly about how he deliberately mixed him down in the final cut. Because he was, uh, he said, that, uh, "A, uh, he thought he improved his some and B knew it would annoy him. Just, <laughs> he's a lot more uh, playful, it seems here, and and it shows, doesn't it? He's a bit more experimental, and there are some a couple of great uh, tracks on there. I think
0: if I could just quickly talk about the um, title track first, yeah, yep. which I don't think works. At yeah, all it's
1: good. not. That's not one of the good. Songs. No,
0: it's kind of it's like that kind of eighties sound that kind of found its way into the early nineties as well. You know. I mean, the lyrics as well, you know, getting your bags from a Benetton ad. And it's got this guy, Al B. Shaw. Yeah, yeah. With an exclamation mark. Yeah. I mean, it's. Singing it's, on. Singing it's, the opening verse. It's the clumsy
1: uh, sort of take on Race of China Girl mixed with the terrible mm. collaboration of a Mickey Rock rap and the awful 80s uh, sound. Of an Eddie Murphy action film, it's like it's almost like taking all his work. But at least it's all in one song. So you get <laughs> yeah. it out of the way, and it just discard that and um, move on to some good stuff. On "I Feel Free," we get the return of Mick Ronson for one song, yeah. which is nice. just before he uh, pops yeah. his plugs it? Yeah, passes on later in the year.
0: Yeah, Cream cover.
1: Yeah, a couple of covers as well, isn't there? There's, uh, Night Flight, a Scott Walker cover. Um, Bo revealed. While doing press for the album, that um, he hated uh, Scott Walker, for, well, not hated, resents him for a long time because he had a girlfriend in the '60s who uh, would listen to nothing but Scott Walker records and constantly tell him how much better Scott Walker was than he was. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for a long time, he didn't like Scott Walker. But in the you... '60s, she was right. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you have you heard um, the clip from the radio where I think it's Marianne Hobbs or someone, but um, they're talking to Bowie on the phone um, on his birthday, I think. It Might be his fiftieth birthday.
0: Yeah, ninety-seven. Yeah, Mm. and uh, I haven't. But they
1: play the clip from Scott Walker.
0: No, they yeah.
1: So Bowie's on there, and they're just talking about his life and whatnot. He's very happy and very relaxed. But um, they go, "Well, we've got a message for you here, and it's just Scott Walker, sort of explaining what a lovely guy David Bowie is, what a wonderful musician he is." Don't bother. (laughs) But uh, it cuts back to the studio, and well, cuts back to the, the the link between Bowie and Bowie's crying. Huh. he's so touched by this he's like I need a copy of that you know it's, mm. it's, it's a wonderful moment You know, and particularly in I sort of knowing that, as I say it wasn't a personal hatred it was just for a long time I probably, he probably found it hard to listen to Scott Walker records going is he better than it? I don't know this is she was quite insistent yeah the other cover version of Significance on the track is I Know It's Gonna Happen Someday um, which is a Morrissey cover but Bowie described it as me doing Morrissey doing me which is uh, quite a nice take
0: on the idea of appropriation i think the one great track on there in my opinion uh is palace athena which has um got like orchestral stuff on it and like it's a some either a sample of a preacher or a madman or something (laughs) but it has been suggested on bowie songs that it was bowie's voice kind of but you know, oh, kind really of treated, and he said, right. I can't find any evidence either way, but just going, God is on top of it all, and it is brilliant. I mean, it's that's a remarkable song, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's one of those great. ones
1: where it sounds like it, if that came out today, you'd go, What a incredible new song! That's. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, it really is kind of um, ahead of its time. And we kind of discovered last time with the Berlin trilogy that you know, you can kind of group albums together after the fact. Um, you know, not necessarily legitimately, but I'm going to do it anyway. It perfectly leads in for the following three albums, kind of more experimental, kind of electronic influence trilogy of the Buddha of Suburbia outside an Earthling, you know, which we'll talk about shortly, which I think is a real resurgence for Bowie.
1: Later in 1993,
0: Bowie releases the album Buddha of Suburbia,
1: which... Gives the impression of being a soundtrack. You imagine it is a soundtrack, but it's more songs influenced by it. It's to coincide with the television adaptation of the novel by Hanif Qureshi, who grew up in the same area around the same time as David Bowie, and deals with a lot of similar themes about uh, acceptance and creativity. In the end, only the title track from the album is used on the television show. But the rest of the album deals with similar themes and ideas.
0: Yeah, Bowie went away after doing um, the title track and recorded... Lenny Kravitz ends up playing on one version of... And rec- used the kind of motifs and stuff, uh, I suppose, lyrically and maybe also sonically, I don't know. And, yeah, put a whole album out. But the trouble is that on the cover, it's got, like, Naveen Andrews, yeah, Who's, yeah. who plays... Um, I don't know the the author's standing, the author's the author's character, I suppose. And it's got the same title, and it was it was marketed as a soundtrack as well. Weirdly, I mean, now it was out of print as well for a long time. You know, which is bizarre that these things are allowed to be deleted. But now it's available, and there's even a new cover, which is just Bowie sitting on a chair, isn't it? Yeah. So it's a proper studio album. Like people have probably skipped over it, not, not having no idea, but like Bowie songs, who I keep coming back to, said, if there is a latter-day great Bowie album, it's this one. I think there's an argument for that. Well, it's nice as well because it is also, you know, we we talked
1: about in the earlier episode of the first couple of Bowie albums spotting references to South London. You know, explicit things about Lambeth and... Screaming
2: along in South London. Yeah,
1: it's our first explicit mention of South London as a place for a long time and also uh, on the liner notes there's a wonderful uh, list of uh, lyrical inspirations that Bowie produces Um, Free Association Lyrics Pink Floyd Harry Parch Costume Blues Clubs Unter de Linden Bruker Museum Pet Sounds Friends of the Craze Roxy Music T-Rex The Casserole Now Craftwork Bromley Croydon Eno Prostitutes and Soho Ronnie Scott's Club Travels Through Russia, Loneliness, OJs, Philip Glass, New York Clubs, DeMauer,
0: Drugs. He doesn't mention Laurie Anderson. He doesn't mention Laurie Anderson at any point. Because she's all over, like, sex and the church. (laughs) Like, that is so Laurie Anderson. But yeah, Eno he mentions, and there's two songs on there particularly. The Mysteries and Ian Fish UK Air, which are just, like, Eno soundscapes, and they sound like something off of his Music for Airport record. And Eno's back for the next record, Outside. A concept album, probably the most heavily conceptual
1: Bowie album of all. Which is saying yeah. something for a man who plays with uh, concept so much.
0: He went into the studio with nothing, it seems. Yeah, and just like fashioned songs out of you know experimentation. Yeah, I mean Eno, as we said, is is there. Um, also, David Richards and Reeves Gabrels, who you know, two other collaborators. But it's an extraordinarily dense record. I really liked it a lot. Particularly the title track, um, I've not been to Oxford Town, No Patrol, We Prick You. But some of the kind of narration and stuff did hinder my enjoyment a little. The bit where Bowie does like a Brooklyn accent, which is just shocking. And there's a bit where it's like properly pitched up the voices and stuff. It's be a child, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So like there's bits I get bits of the story, but I enjoy it sonically and I'm not in, not really interested in knowing what the rest of the story is. I didn't really investigate what the concept was or really kind of listen to the lyrics, if you know what I mean. So, Steve, tell me, enlighten me. I'm sure you have. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's it's
1: supposedly based around the idea of uh, a detective called uh, Nathan Adler who investigates art murder.
0: Investigates.
1: <laughs> and the idea is that there's, uh, there's a, an artistic movement uh, that commits murder in the name of art and art detectives like Nathan Adler investigate the crimes to decide whether they are works of art or simply crimes. It's got a suitably dense subtitle for such a heavily conceptual album. You know, the title outside, very straightforward, very simple. Um, but to give it its full title, Outside, The Ritual Art Murder of Baby Grace Blue, a non-linear gothic drama hypercycle. <laughs> Just call it Outside, that Yeah, I agree with you. I, I wasn't grabbed by the story or the concept I thought musically it was uh, brilliant but I was also interested in the methods that they arrived at the, the songs we talked earlier about uh, the oblique
0: what was the card called the oblique um, oblique strategies oblique strategies cards next to that in the um, uh, V&A exhibition they've got a video of David Bowie I think it's for this album Sticking a load of random phrases into a computer, like he did in the past with, uh, you know, scissors and... His pe- like burrows cut and uh, pieces. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it's the Verbalizer. It's a program he invented,
1: it, isn't it, almost? Yeah, it's a custom program that he... I think he, he commissioned it. He asked for... But, yeah, basically, he'd, he'd type random things into his Mac. The Verbalizer would then cut and reassemble the words electronically. And then Bo would look at what was produced... And then decide whether he was gonna sing the words, uh interpret them as a piece of dialogue as a character, or or become a new character to introduce an idea. And similarly, you know, while Bowie's creating the lyrics with this method, um Eno had flashcards that he would hand out to the musicians at the end of the day. Um uh Bowie says uh on each one a character was written like You are the disgruntled member of a South African rock band. Play the notes that were suppressed.
0: (laughs) Black tie, white noise. (laughs) There's a printout as well um, on the wall and it says random sentences generated 2.08pm, 6th of March 1994. So like he's got... And all this stuff apparently is from his personal archive, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Extraordinary.
1: Probably the best known track on the album would be Heart's Filthy Lesson. Because it plays over the end of David Fincher's Seven.
0: Yeah, I mean, I love Seven. And I've seen it uh, a few times, but I didn't actually realise that. Okay, I would have said the most um, well-known track was "Hallows" Space boy, but
1: yeah, no, you're probably
0: right. Actually, yeah, but the, the whole album is just so dense, man. It's a hard one to sort of combat in a listen or two, but I think it's well worth it if you're a Bowie fan and you've not really listened to that one. I think it's well worth digging back in and just giving you know probably skip some of the dialogue on it. I mean the bit where can't, man it's all so yeah, heavily mentioned, isn't it? Yeah. Once upon a time, Steve, records used to have covers, right? Like there would to be these things called record shops, and people would go in and like rather than just getting an invisible record, it was like on a piece of plastic and it was either a CD or a, uh, a vinyl, sometimes a tape, which had the magnetic tape inside a plastic casing, and there was a picture on the front. Well, the cover would have the information regarding the title and the artist, I imagine. But also, there'd be images... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I see. And are you aware of the phrase, Steve, don't judge a book by its cover?
1: I've heard that (laughs) phrase.
0: (laughs) Right, with albums, yeah. You know, you get an idea sometimes of what the record is based on the cover, don't you? Like, just some kind of that come to mind, you know, like Disraeli Gears by Cream, or saying Love's um, Forever Changes, these kind of... Iconic. Yeah, you just stare. At, you just kind of stand there, staring at this kind of square foot of cardboard. You know, you form an opinion of what the, what might be on this record. And with Earthling, it came out in 1997, so I was 14, and it's the height, really, of the Britpop era in it. I and mean, I know it kind of kicked off a couple of years earlier. Yeah, but really, like, it was when did Oasis release Be Here Now? That was 97, wasn't it? I think you were well, right like now. the album cover, like, what does it mean? Was making. The front page of national newspapers—it was just so huge. Not it? not good national newspapers. Kid.
1: <laughs> is that that says more Something. for our national newspapers? <laughs> than it does Freddie Bills, I <laughs>
3: you?
0: Yeah, Freddie Star at my hamster was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is the time when everyone was draped in a Union Jack, and not everyone, but you know I these was... huge these huge bands. You know, what I mean, yeah, where, yeah. and then you've got Bowie on his record cover, and he's wearing the Alexander McQueen Union Jack coat. And I had always assumed that Earthling was. Having never I heard Little Wonder, which was the single, which was, again, was quite big. But, I don't know, I just somehow missed it. But I, I was I presumed it was Bowie kind of desperately trying to sort of... Jump on a bandwagon. Yeah, trying yeah. to get some popularity, keeping one hand in, as you said, Steve. <laughs> but I couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, it's the boldest record he's ever done, arguably. Yeah. Certainly of his kind of modern catalogue. Well, it's interesting as well because if it was
1: just uh, a cheap attempt to cash in on a phenomenon you know and this at is at this point you've got you know the prodigy are one of the biggest bands in the world at this point and they're just constantly touring and playing sell out crowds producing these you know ridiculously successful albums um and you've got there is this huge sort of uh, rising popularity of what becomes known as Electronica, which sort of, you know, rises alongside, you know, the Chemical Brothers, rises alongside uh, Britpop. And if it was just going to be a tawdry cash-in, it would have been very easy for him just to hire, you know, producers and engineers to recreate the sounds that he needs and then just, you know, get the old verbiser out and uh, drop some lyrics over the top of it. But what I found fascinating about it was it's all organically produced, isn't it?
0: Yeah, there's no samples. Yeah. They sample they themselves. Create, yeah. yeah, they
1: create the sounds. Things like... Um, I forget what track it's on, but uh, there's a bit where um, the bass player is just messing about with a pedal to tune it up. I think that him. was Little
0: Wonder, wasn't it? Oh, that's was that's it? Oh, right, yeah. And they
1: just record her doing that and
0: it becomes... Uh, a jungle drum and bass track. Yeah, <laughs> remarkable, wasn't it? He, Bowie said he wanted to do a sonic photograph of the outside tour, you know, what they were doing on tour. And he says that the album was an effort to produce something really dynamic, aggressive sounding material. And it it is, like, where Tim Machine didn't rock at all, like, this absolutely does, like, Little Wonder particularly, but um, Seven Years in Tibet is another one that's, like, really hard... Um, He's hanging out right. a lot
1: with uh, Nine Inch Nails this time as well, isn't he?
0: Like, Trent Rez is doing a lot of
1: remixing as well, and he's clearly listening to a lot of... Yeah, as I say, it's, it's British uh, dance stuff and UK, uh, US industrial stuff seem to be the two sort of things that merge together on this album. And you've got, you know, Bowie as Innovator, again, you know, Telling Lies, the first downloadable single. Not surprised that it's David Bowie that's involved, mm. is it? Did you um, read about the web chat he did to promote it as
0: well? No. Because um, ninety seven, man, that's yeah. To be doing that's anything, early days, yeah, man.
1: Yeah, and you you know uh, he's I think at this point already recorded the first album done entirely on uh, recorded ones were hard drive rather than uh, tape. Um, he's messing about with CD ROMs, finding them very frustrating because they don't have the fluidity that, that he wants. But um, yeah, he launches Telling Lies as a single with an online chat session um, in 1997. But, and this is the thing, this is, this is a great idea now. Um, the single's called Telling Lies. So basically, Bowie hosts a web chat session where he and two other people pretend to be him and they answer questions from the people online. Um, Bowie tells the truth and the other two deliberately tell lies. Then at the end, the chat audience are asked to vote on who they think is the real Bowie. And uh, almost predictably, uh, the real Bowie comes third. As <laughs> <laughs> is the
0: tradition. Yeah,
1: it's always a way to say. Charlie Chaplin came last in the Charlie Chaplin look-alike hmm. composition.
0: As I put these in the trilogy, Steve, the, the electronic ones I really like, I think I'm going to put the next three in the trilogy as well. Hours, Heathen and Reality. Single word titles. Yeah, that's what I've done.
1: <laughs> it's just a strong theme, isn't it? With
0: Four Hours, uh, 1999, Reeves Gabriel's producing, co-producing with Bowie, I think. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: It's not experimental. Bowie went in with the songs already. He said that the lyrics are the focus. You know, he don't need two or three focuses, like, on outside. You know, he's got... It's just songs, you know.
1: But there is one exception to this, of course, where... He sets up the Cyber Song Challenge, and again it's Bowie as experimentalist. Bowie trying to adapt to new media, um, so he puts up an instrumental track and invites the general public to write lyrics for it. And the winner gets to record the song with David Bowie uh, again on a live uh, web feed as well. Um, it's one level
0: forty-two.
1: <laughs> He's already had his win. Um, the winner is a guy called Alex Grant who uh, does record. But I think he brings his friend into the studio. Yeah. His friend might end up doing backing vocals as well. But the two of them are doing like backing vocals wow. with uh, David Bowie on uh, "What's Really Happening." And again, it, it, the actual the inspiration,
0: the genesis,
1: is quite an interesting one yeah. and not typical for uh, many artists, let alone. One of the most established and iconic artists in recording music. Yeah, Omicron, the Nomad
0: Soul. Yeah, it was a computer game that wasn't that good, apparently.
1: It sounds like there were a lot of these computer games at the time, where it was... Uh, there were know. a lot of
0: computer games in the base.
1: No, but this particular format, where it was... there's, It was all, all felt very sort of Blade Runner. There's a world, and you walk through it, and you're solving puzzles, and you're interacting with people, and it's... How you, the response you get out of people, and the order you do it, you're solving the mystery. And I haven't played it, I don't know anyone that has. You put a little shout out online to see if you could find anyone that had.
0: Yeah, someone sent me a link to a review. So. Any good? No, I didn't get a great review, but uh, apparently the user review was better. But the album, I don't think, is all that. No, no. It does seem it does seem cobbled together from old computer game music and not in a good way. <laughs> it seems quite
1: uh, tired as well compared to the sort of the energy of the last couple of albums. It does seem it's like you, know, you don't want to uh, disparage the guy or his methods but you just get a vision on a couch going just get some kid in to do the lyrics. I'm, yeah. I'm knackered. <laughs> just d- we'll, we'll do it as an online thing. Alex Grant, sounds great. Get him in. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to play the computer game just because um, Bowie and Iman turn up as characters that you interact with. Not as... And the know, bass player as well. Yeah, you don't just go up to David with Bowie and go, uh, all right, how's it going? You have to... Uh, he's just... he. It's his body as a model of a citizen in this place and you, you grill him for information.
0: Do you know about the album Toy?
1: I you sent me a link to it around the same time I was reading about it anyway oh, okay. was, yeah but it was, it was nice sort of like to sort of know that we had this synchronicity going on we like yeah there was this thing that uh, I'd never heard of it until um, doing research for this
0: yeah Bowie recorded a load of his 60s tracks wasn't it the yeah. kind of unknown ones or lesser known should we say and some new stuff I think and shelf it basically yeah um, and then, then ten, dust ten off yeah 10 years later it gets um, a kind of not a bootleg release, I mean, it gets leaked. I mean, you can get it. Yeah. And it is, it's quite uh, interesting to listen to. But yeah, the some of the tracks end up on it. Heathen from 2002, which is Reunion with Tony Visconti. Yeah, he's
1: back. Also, um, a bit of a return to form in uh, album covers. In uh, Yes. You can look at it
0: directly without worrying about uh, Your Eyes Bleeding. It's, yeah, it's by far his best record cover of the last uh, twenty years, <laughs> yeah, 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 probably at uh, this point. It is after yeah. post uh, Heroes. Yeah, yeah, not best. I mean, only good one. <laughs> I tell you what, the Crystal Crystal that, no. Japan Japanese release has got a great cover. <laughs> <laughs> That's inside, isn't it? People can look it up on Wikipedia. We recreated a couple of Bowie album covers for the first show: Heroes and Aladdin Sane. Uh, which got a nice reception didn't it on Facebook facebook.com slash South London Hardcore if you want to and on Twitter like at SLHC a lot yeah. of people <laughs> enjoyed it there well. <laughs> we did a couple as well this time which uh, have a look on the site southlandhardcore.com less iconic ones obviously but you'll you'll get the idea again
1: couple of uh, high profile cameos Pete Townsend and uh, Dave Grohl turn up to um, play on it um, interesting cover as well uh, Cactus
0: the Pixies cover Yeah, yeah, I love Pixies, and I think Bowie loves them as much as I do. I've decided.
1: I liked the fact that he'd appropriated uh, a nice little motif in the song as well on the original, between uh, one of the verses and chorus. um, You hear people in the studio spelling out Pixies, Uh, P I. (laughs) You know, you know, Pixies spell. There's no, there's no C K. uh, I, I was reading about that and apparently someone I forget who it was the drummer or the bass player refused to get involved he was like this is just uh, it's a bit perhaps so I'm not going to get involved um, but he was like there's all sorts of people just in the studio just like shout out so he's like they've all turned they've all ended up on a Pixies record um, and for the Bowie version uh, he spells that David in the same space yeah. so it's a nice sort of cover but
0: you know literally make it your own I think it's the best out of the three of these three kind of rock records everyone says hi that's a highlight what do you reckon about the album
1: yeah it's okay I mean it's not one of his best ones but it, you know it's far from uh, the worst as we've heard in this uh, particular sequence
0: getting quite prolific at this point isn't he again yeah no he's got a bit of momentum you know reality comes out in 2003
1: reality swings back to uh, you know we've had the, the high point of the good cover um, so now we get one of the worst covers yeah of all time by any Artist. by anyone ever worst images just uh, it's Bowie looking like a, a manga character yeah just yeah. looking like someone who's, who's just fallen out of Naruto
0: or and anything. it's the guy who did the, the the next day cover so how are we still getting work after that <laughs> <laughs> reality is an interesting album for me because it seems
1: really preoccupied with ageing and the last track without knowing you know if it, it, if he hadn't released the, the latest album, you, it just feels like a retirement album. It feels like it's him saying goodbye. And the last track, um, Bring Me the Disco King, just sounds like him looking back over his career and just sort of just waving to the crowd.
0: It opens with New Killer Star, which is a glam rock track, basically, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which absolutely. is great, I think, I really yeah. like it. But yeah, really is kind of the most uh, glam rock thing he's done since, like, before Diamond Dogs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does feel like um, a bit of a retrospective, doesn't it? Now here's Stephen Graham to talk about Heaven and Reality, and Bowie's so-called comeback.
3: First thing first, I guess they're. I think they're great albums. There's loads of really interesting material on the on the preceding albums, the kind of Brit Jungle albums outside and Earthling. Um, and in some ways, I suppose a, you know, an experimenting, searching Bowie that you find on those earlier albums is better than a kind of retrenching Bowie, which is. Um, in some ways what uh, Heathen and Reality and, and Ours could be seen as uh, Bowie returning to his kind of um, rock roots but in any case that, that trio, Ours, Heathen and Reality, uh, they were released around the turn of the century um, and they, without doubt they saw Bowie returning to some kind of uh, canonical bowie where you have sort of rock inflected by age and arty themes and kind of arty sonics um, and these three albums do that to great, with great success um, so particularly with Heathen in reality more so than ours um, along with things like his triumphant appearance at, Gla- at Glastonbury at that time which I was at um, this was very much hailed as a triumphant comeback-y sort of mature period for Bowie and actually Heathen in reality do see Bowie at the peak of his mainstream sort of adult rock powers with songs like New Killer Star and the pretty things are going to hell. They work really well in the vein of kind of man who sold the world ish kind of hardish rock, um, and then songs like Bring Me the Disco King and 5:15 The Angels Come, adding a sense of sort of queerness and a sense of kind of lateness or senescence to uh, or agingness to these albums. So it's a, it's a very sort of potent mix, and you find it again on his recent album. The next day you have this this mix of. Um, Sort of mainstream Bowie rock, inflected with age and inflected with odd touches of queerness that that um, that differentiate it from a lot of other sort of mainstream rock that's being released at the moment. So, so with *Teeth* and *Reality*, I just wanted to talk about a couple of things that. Uh, are bugbears of mine and I've uh, they've annoyed me for years and years and years. So with these albums, as with other albums like Dylan's Bob Dylan's Time Out of Mind from around the same period, um and later albums of his. And even in some of sort of Paul McCartney's work and other artists of that sort of generation or that sort of age, um, we, we were witnessed for the first time to artists trying to deal in a creative way with the aging of themselves and of as popular music artists. So it used to be said that pop music was a kind of a young person's game, and it was easily dismissed on those grounds. Thankfully, that's become uh, less of a prominent argument these days, it seems to me at least. But it's you still find it uh, being uh, repeated uh, in, in lots of places that should know better. Um, but it's, it's just artisanal capitalism at its worst. Um, pop music is no more just for young people than classical music is for old rich people. But these albums, in any case, they do a great job in in giving the lie to that idea uh, in a really straightforward way. So with Heathen and Reality, you see a new kind of popular music where it's kind of fraught with age and and it's very conscious of time and ageing. Um and the music wears these things really, really well, showing up how wrong that kind of uh, youth agenda is, that idea that pop music is only able to express things about youth. Um these this music which wears these these qualities of aging um and oldness so well, it shows up that um the tenuousness of that youth agenda. So these albums they sound aged but but great and really interesting and vibrant and so on. Um and they show that Um, Yeah, pop music is always a sort of an all-person's game, not a young person's game. And the second thing I want to discuss will be familiar to anyone who uh, spent years mired in uh, the sort of lads mag, uh, I don't mean lads mag in terms of soft porn, I mean lads mag in terms of Q Magazine and Rolling Stone, that sort of lad-led music criticism model um, where the cool sort of uh, gang of boys was the um primary sort of paradigm for understanding what was of value in music um, and and what what you find in a lot of those magazines was the idea that um usually comeback albums by older bands or artists um, but also just new albums in general um, are good only within their sales cycle, and then those albums and that critical opinion that critical idea that those albums are worth anything uh, don 't seem to matter outside the sales cycle and this is kind of sales, fashion-driven nonsense, um, it, It's and it's not that fashion is nonsense, um, but cheaply read fashion is, is kind of capitalism at its worst, and where the only thing that matters is novelty, novelty, novelty. Um, these albums, Heathen and Reality, are of really high standard and they're great quality. Um, they were ten years ago and they still are now, even if most of the music press and the public seem to have forgotten about them. Um, So it's kind of, I see it as our kind of job to remember them so that if nothing else, you know, the present and future triumphs have some meaning outside um, their immediate hype so that albums like The Next Day aren't just treated as triumphs now, but are remain to remain as triumphs in ten years time, just as he and the reality were treated as triumphs ten years ago but are now completely forgotten. In all the articles about the next day, or most of them at least, about the next day and Bowie's supposed comeback, um, they failed to mention that ten years ago he also had a triumphant comeback which lasted for quite a few years and consisted of at least three albums. The following year, in 2004, in
0: Oslo, some idiot throws a lollipop and hits him in the eye. And then a week later, he has a heart attack in Germany. And that sort of seems to be his retirement, doesn't it? I was listening to uh, WTF with Mark Maron podcast, and he had their John Darniel on it from the Mountain Goats. And he was they were t- just talking about Bowie and Lou Reed, and it must have been recorded just before the new album came out, because the album just came out of nowhere, didn't it? The, or the first single from the album, I should say. But he says, yeah, I respect the fact that Dave Bowie's basically decided that he's got nothing more to say. And, you know, because <laughs> he hasn't recorded at this, he hasn't released anything for eight years, you know. And then, boom, obviously the new record comes out. Yeah. But presume that the heart attack and the fact, I mean, his daughter was uh, four years old at the time, is the reason why he's, you know, he withdrew a bit. Yeah, at this point, the
1: output is... Uh, live albums and reissues isn't it because he hasn't toured since then has he and he did tour
0: reality I mean it was a reality tour DVD and CD
1: as I say it did feel like the tone of that album particularly last track he felt like a man saying goodbye as a professional uh, performer and then as I say you know at that point he's done enough you can just sort of release live albums and reissues and reissues and just you know, take Too Dizzy off it because it's not very good and sort of, you know, look at remastering and whatnot. But instead, in 2013, which sounds like something from mm-hmm. a Bowie song from 1972, um, on his 66th birthday, we get a new single. Yeah, Where Are We Now? Where Are We Now? Which is great. I mean, yeah. I like that one, man. An album follows shortly after, the next day. Goes into the charts at number one. His first number one since Black Tie White Noise in 1993. No covers on the album. All songs, bar two, written entirely by David Bowie. It's just you know a complete return, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and is is uh, you know I mean people will probably ridicule me for saying this, but his best records in Zafli.
1: <laughs> they've got that on stick on the people... front of the
0: album <laughs> I mean I know people say best record since uh, you know as we said less Dance or Scary Monster Super Creeps but you know as he, as he it's a rock record oh, and yeah. it's preceded by three rock records and it's better than any of those yeah. it'd be better than a compilation of those three records I reckon
1: yeah you know people have compared it to Tim Machine but it yeah, just but feels but much more so substantial compare, doesn't isn't it? it yeah no absolutely i say with Tim Machine it feels very sort of safe and rounded, and this feels quite raw. It's, yeah, the uh, opening got a real track, sort of energy to the it.
0: title track, the next day is just so like immediate and just grabs you, doesn't it? Yeah, like yeah. it's such a great opening to the album. Love is lost with this driving organ, brilliant. You can hear different bits of David Bowie's career throughout the album. I think absolutely. Like there's things that sound like uh, Scary Monsters Super Creeps, some stuff that sounds like could be a Diamond Dogs. A lot of it does have this kind of sound. Well, it doesn't sound like a guy in this his sixties who was kind of a pioneer putting it out. Yeah. yeah. It kinda of sounds like like when a kind of current band puts something out and it's been filtered like it's an influence that's been filtered through. Yeah, yeah. Like I'd rather be high. Doesn't sound like a record from nineteen sixty seven. It sounds like a record from the last fifteen, twenty years that is influenced from something yeah, by him. Yeah, yeah. In nineteen sixty seven. And Similarly, Valentine's Day sounds a lot to me like the Sleepy Jacksons' um, Good Dancers, which I'm sure it's not like a rip-off of it or anything, but it's just one of these things where he's ended up sounding like someone influenced by Bowie.
1: Well, you know, we talked about on the previous episode there was that poll where he was named as the most influential musician by a number of... So, you know, he's going to go through a process of you know, if he does an album now, it's going to sound like fans who have listened to him. <laughs> you know, it's not uh, unusual. There was one point, um, one issue that the musicians had while they were recording because it, it's very sort of very much a studio project. And Visconti said a lot of the musicians were concerned and asked Bowie, "You know, how are we going to do this live?" And he said, "We're not." You know, and that's nice as well, isn't it? Mm. You know, and again, as a, a counterpoint to the Rolling Stones, who uh, you know never never stop, you know, gouging people for 150 pounds to watch them doing songs from 50 years ago in uh, a stadium. You know, he's sort of like, you know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need to be out there high kicking and uh, skidding across the stage.
0: Obviously Bowie put huge amounts of effort into live shows in the past, like as I said at the VNA, there's just bits where he's drawn sets and stuff. Well as but... a
1: performer, as well. you're talking about a man who studied mime to make himself a better pop star, so he he's not going to be a guy who's just going to turn up, run through the hits... You know, thank you, Oklahoma, and go backstage <laughs> for a fruit bowl. Do you know what I mean he's if he's going to do something, he wants to do it properly, and if he's not, he's sixty-six years old. If he's not, if he doesn't feel the drive to do that, you know, we've we've talked about you know projects on here that he's felt obliged to do rather than a drive to do, and if he's not feeling like doing a live show, then that's more than you know you've given more than enough.
0: Mm. I mean, I would like to go and see him, but oh,
1: absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think I'd, I'd be fascinated to see him do. Um, a sort of very stripped down acoustic show just something where it was very sort of contemplative rather than you know a full on performance worrying about a backdrop or anything basically I'd like to see Bowie in a very small venue by myself but you know yes
0: or <laughs> uh... well, a very big venue by yourself, you know Plus, yeah. <laughs> there'll be a load of stuff about Bowie this week on com. if you scroll back down a few weeks or just click blog archive actually you would be able to, yeah you'll be able to see a load of Bowie stuff we've put up in the past some great videos and stuff listen to our first episode if you haven't already at SouthlandHardcore.com at SLHC on Twitter Facebook.com SouthlandHardcore you can email us SouthlandHardcore at gmail.com and we'll see you again for part three David Bowie on screen If you're going to buy stuff from Amazon anyway, which you definitely are, go to SouthLondonHardcore.com first and click the Amazon banner and even replace your Amazon link with the South London Hardcore Amazon link.